Hi, everyone. This is Richard Hanania with the CSPI podcast. Um, just a few announcements today. Uh, we're going to discontinue the subscriber feed. Originally, the idea was we'd have one subscriber feed for people who donated to the organization and then have a feed on which the show will come out later. We decided that's not conducive to spreading the message as, as wide as possible. Sometimes our podcasts are time sensitive. Having two separate feeds means people are hearing it at different times. And we want everybody to be able to download and listen to the podcast um, around the same time. So for subscribers and donors, we'll try to find other ways to uh, bring you content. But the main goals of this organization is to spread ideas. It's not necessarily to go for a subscriber-based model, even though we do appreciate our subscribers and would like to reward them in some way. So if you're on the CSPI uh, subscriber feed, uh, if, that's what you're, um, if that's what you're subscribed through, just d- delete that or it'll stop updating on its own. But jump onto the uh, regular CSPI feed. You can find that through the Apple Store or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find it on our website. There's a there's a link to the podcast. <clears throat> so the second uh, announcement is we've got music for the podcast, um, and one of our uh, one of our listeners reached out and said, "Yeah, I noticed there was no music. Would you like Would you like a tune?" Uh, we went for a sort of uh, contemporary jazz and PR feel. Um, you guys can give us feedback on whether we hit the mark with that. So without further ado, uh, this is CSBI Podcast, and our guest today is going to be Zach Goldberg. Okay, so I'm here with Zach Goldberg. Zach, how are you doing? Not too bad, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. We're glad to be here. glad to have you here. Uh, Zach is a research fellow at CSPI. He's also a graduate student at Georgia State University. Um, I, I first came across your work uh, in the same way I come across most people's work these days on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. So to, can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, your background, what do you study, your day job, all that stuff. Um, I am in my fifth and hopefully my final year of uh, my doctoral degree in political science, uh, where I'm studying at Georgia State University. Uh, before this, I was, uh, I spent eight years living in Israel, actually, uh, studying something completely, I guess it's not entirely unrelated to things that are going on or things that I'm studying now, but I was studying uh, terrorism or uh, radical extremist ideology. I guess I jumped on the, the post 9-11 terrorism bandwagon and, and just <laughs> went right down that rabbit hole. And uh, I studied, uh, got my BA and my MA uh, in Israel. Uh, I also, uh, during my time there, I served in the Israeli army for two years. I got Israeli citizenship. And then, uh, you know, uh, once I was done with that and I realized the job market just in Israel is very tiny, especially for social science graduates, I ended up coming back here and uh, I made the decision to pursue my PhD. Um, and right now I am studying uh, left-wing ideology and my dissertation researchers, well, I guess we'll be discussing that, but uh, 
it concerns the rapid rise uh, in, um, I guess, uh, racially progressive ideology on the left. Um, and that's really what my hobby horse or my preoccupation is now. I, if, not, if I'm not teaching methods, I'm uh, working on my, uh, my latest chapter. Um, Interesting. I, I didn't know you were, uh, you lived eight years in Israel. You're, you're not that old of a guy. So eight years is a significant portion of your life, is it not? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. Uh, I mean, thanks. Uh, I guess <laughs> I'm feeling old. So thank, thanks for, thanks for, I guess, for sharing <laughs> me. But yeah, I'm, uh, I spent, I, I mean, and when I went there, I didn't have really any, um, I didn't anticipate uh, coming back. Um I guess I went there as a, uh, well, I, I primarily went to Israel to serve in the army initially. I guess I had that ISIS recruit fervor. I want to go and fight for my country. <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm not putting on the same plane, but yeah. you know, and then, you know, we threw there and uh, reality sets in that, okay, now I have to tough it out for the rest of my life here. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of sacrifices living in Israel. Obviously it's, a very developed country and uh it's more comfortable than living in other some other countries in the region but um uh, the idea of having to do miluim or reserve duty till i was 45 you know with kids and maybe going to war you know just to i guess uh cover up for the mistakes and the follies of the politicians and <laughs> i was just like you know i'm gonna get too old for this shit. <laughs> and then that in the job market uh i ended up uh coming back and uh what's interesting now is uh you know um just, uh, especially after studying the awakening for, or I guess the, um, you know, I guess the rapid rise of the woke left uh, for the past few years. Now I'm thinking of going back to Israel. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate to have an escape route. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of my American patriots don't uh, <laughs> really have that luxury. But uh, the Israel slide is, 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 you know, it's always there for me. So, um, if, you know should ever really hit the fan here i'm out <laughs> yeah so that's fast for now i'm, I'm here in america <laughs> yeah i didn't yeah. know that so you're i mean you're american obviously you have an american accent you you act like an american well, where did you grow up where were you born uh i was born and believe it or not in the dc in the nation's capital uh lived there for like five minutes <laughs> yeah. you know i guess the time i took to get from the hospital to back to or my parents were living in Silver Spring, uh, Maryland, and we lived there for three years. And then uh, uh, we packed up and moved again to New Jersey, where I lived till I was eighteen. Uh, and when I you, actually, and what brought you to Israel? Was it was it a uh, was it a, um, a sort of a nationalistic pull? Yeah, it was Zionist indoctrination. You know, uh, <laughs> and I, I mean, listen, I went to a Jewish school my entire life, and then um, after. Uh, my uh, I finished high school. I went did a uh, I participated in like a gap year program uh, by the Zionist uh, Young Judea organization, and uh, pretty much they just arranged for gap years for you know those that finished high school or just want to take a gap year from college. And I went to Israel and fell in love with the place. Love walking around, seeing these cool soldiers on the street with machine guns, you know, yeah. fighting for the country. I wanted, yeah. you know, I thought that would be pretty sick myself, you know, if, you know, only to pick up the ladies, but, uh, it was, uh, I don't regret any of it, to be honest with you. It, it definitely, um, it, it gave me some much needed perspective and, uh, it really, at least, uh, I mean, how many people get to say that they, 
did what I did. So I, I, I definitely find meaning in, in that. And um, uh, I guess you can't really, it made me who I am today. So um, I, don't, yeah. I don't have any regrets here. Yeah, everybody is sort of, um, everybody is sort of shaped, especially political people are shaped by the political environment they grew up in. Uh, what year did you go to Israel? I went to Israel in um, the gap year, again, in the fall of 2006. I came back in May of 2007, anticipating that I would finally honor my commitment to George Washington University. And then, you know, as we started shopping for pillowcases, uh, you know, and just dorm room gear, I, the entire time I was just still practicing my Hebrew. Like I really, Israel was still yeah. in my heart and I just, something felt off just spending a year there and coming back and just going right back to being an American again and just mm. going through the American routine of going to college, finishing college, getting a job, getting married, dying. You know, I, I just didn't want to, uh, I, I guess, uh, fall into that pattern. And I wanted to just do something crazy. Um, which is, I guess, is kind of typical for a lot of people that go off. I mean, I don't want to compare myself to an ISIS recruit, but yeah. there's definitely an allure in, in being, you know, in being a, uh, uh, I, I guess, a partic partic par participating in a cause that is greater than yourself. You know, yeah. 100%, and, and, you know. Yeah. Not just ISIS, <laughs> but the anti-ISIS movement also recruits a lot of people. Well, then, yeah, yeah, the, 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 that as well. And, you can see, and, and, and that's what I'm saying is that, my work or my experiences in Israel definitely do inform in some way my um, my understanding or my uh, appreciation for the uh, awakening. Uh, and um, I know some people are, are very cynical about, you know, is this really just corporate signaling and nobody actually believes it or they're, uh, you know, those are, are these people actually committed to these moral convictions and beliefs? And I, I do think it's a combination of both, but I do think that definitely the moral commitments are um, a big part of it, uh, which is actually the object of my dissertation. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I definitely do think, um, listen, there's a hodgepodge of motivations, just like, you know, when it comes to ISIS recruitment, you know, not everybody was a, uh, I guess, uh, just a, um, a pure Islamist that, that was really just, uh, you know, just imbibing all the catechism. I mean, obviously, maybe symbolically or nominally they were, but for a lot of them, you know, they just wanted to see, see some action, you know? <laughs> yeah, I remember there was this one Western recruit to ISIS. I was listening to him uh, uh, give an interview or something. And he's like, man, this is like Grand Theft Auto. You just go out there and you just take a car, yeah. you go out there and you, you know, you have, you have fun. Yeah, I am also, I mean, I'm also of a Middle Eastern background on the opposite side of the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. conflict. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, I never was motivated to, to, you know, go, go do anything in the Middle East, but just having a background of a culture where people do actually take their religion seriously, and they do care about these, you know, ideas, and they're willing to live and die for them and understanding sort of that mentality gave me like it seems to have given you a different perspective on American culture and American politics those people who are just like it's all money I mean it's all just it's it's a conspiracy yeah. to get you to forget about uh yeah to divide to, or something to, yeah right 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 the, yeah, I see that I mean people posted it on my Twitter that the wokening was really installed or launched by the, uh, I guess, corporate elites to divide the working class uh, and to distract from uh, class solidarity uh, that would lead to, I guess, you know, a universal, a more universalist redistribution of goods 
uh, and resources, you know, across all class lines and not just, but, and it's just like, that's an interesting idea, I guess. I, I, I just don't have, well, how would you, first of all, how would you test that? And second, I, I don't have evidence for that. <laughs> yeah. or I don't see evidence for that. I, then again, I haven't really, I guess we have to come up with a good test of that because uh, I mean, this right now is just mind reading, <laughs> you know, it's just imputing one's, and I guess a lot of people that do that maybe are, and I do have some sympathies with the classical socialists, you know, and classical leftists that want to focus on class-based solidarity. I, I do definitely, have, um, you know, uh, I, I do sympathize with that. I just don't know whether that these, um, you know, the awakening is the result of that conspiracy or this plan to try to distract from, um, you know, I guess, income or class inequality. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, on, we're, on the, we're on the same page. But yeah, before we get into sort of the, the reasons and the motivations uh, behind the Great Awakening, let's let's talk about for our audience what the Great Awakening is. So this was this was your big idea. And you're a graduate student now. You're not a established professor. And I love the sort of egalitarianism of, of the internet and social media in the sense that if you have an interesting idea, and sometimes people's ideas who, who who become famous are, are very, very bad, like <laughs> QAnon. But it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is right. democratic in the sense that if you have an idea that takes off, and your your idea took off for good reasons because it was insightful and smart and told us something about the world, it can get a lot of attention, even though you might not be at an advanced stage of your career or have or have the credentials. Uh, so can you just right. talk a little bit about what the Great Awakening is? Well, yeah. Um, I would say probably around um, 2014 or so, uh, I guess we're in the uh, the last two years of the Obama administration. Everybody, and at the time, I was still focused on, I guess, ISIS and studying, you know, Islamic terrorism. Uh, so this, at the time, and you know, when the wokening really started taking off, it, it wasn't as apparent for me yet. Uh, but um, I think Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff, uh, you know, started writing about uh, some of these campus. PC gone, you know, uh, amok uh, incidents on, on college campuses. And there seemed to be a sense among people that something was, something different was going on, you know, than what we're used to. Um, fast forward to, I guess, me being in Atlanta as a, uh, a PhD student, uh, or I guess fast forward to the 2016 election, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, soul searching, uh, especially, um, you know, among, you know, opponents of, of Trump, uh, particularly, uh, you know, in the research community about, you know, how do everybody just because overnight there was a Trump studies program that, that really, uh, you know, emerged where the sole focus is on understanding, you know, how people could come and vote for Trump. What happened to conservatives, the Republican Party, you know, that can make them support Trump. And I thought that was an interesting question as well. But when I actually looked uh, into the data, you know, trying to see what was different about Trump voters uh, in 2016 versus 2012 and previous years, um, I found that, you know what, they're really, you would expect maybe to see this really, I guess, glaring change in the data, you know, in terms of attitudes and immigration and race. And I found that, you know what, um, by and large, uh, compared to what we would expect there to be, and you're expecting this major change, major shift, you know, Trump voters in 2016 on a lot of these issues are really not that, um, uh, I guess, dissimilar from voters uh, in previous years. 
Um, and it was, I guess, apparent to me that these attitudes, you know, conservative attitudes have really, these attitudes on immigration, attitudes on race, they've always been there. Trump merely just tapped into them and spoke to them. I mean, they were always operating. Just Trump managed to uh, exploit that, uh, whereas previous uh, Republican yeah, leaders did I mean, not. About uh, Trump, I mean, before I, I, you have to sort of almost talk about these things together, the great awakening yeah, yeah. And, and Trump. When I would, so when I started grad school, it was about uh, 2013. So it was before, before Trump, and that's when you do your class, you do your classes in the first few years of grad school. And so Trump wasn't really on the people's radar. It was more the Tea Party. And when I took my political psychology course, um, it was all about racism, basically. It was all about everything. Like, so people who don't pay attention to yeah. psychology, they're like, oh, there was there was this, you know, there's this ideological difference. Liberals believe in this, and conservatives believe in small government or whatever. But the academic um, consensus at the time was that there's racial attitudes and they're driving everything. And this is before Trump came along. Now, some of that research is biased. They're not looking at some of the biases and some of the uh, cognitive mistakes that liberals make. Um, so it was all just basically about conservatives. But that doesn't mean they're finding that racial attitudes. However, you classify them, they would say that this is racism, and me and you might might have a different interpretation. They're just, you know, it's a backlash to sort of this PC, which is a which is a reverse racism. That's sort of the right wing view. But either way, no matter how you classify it, the the point that these attitudes are fundamental drivers of political behavior, I think, was established and absolutely clear. Right? Is it was that your impression too, even before Trump came along? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, uh, I guess racial attitudes or the, the issue of race has been a dividing line, you know, in American politics for, for decades. And uh, as the uh, parties have sorted, you know, uh, whites moving into more and more into the Republican party, leaving the democratic party, obviously, you know, that uh, those dividing lines have uh, intensified. And that's actually part of the story as well. When we understand the origins of the awakening is that, uh, now, Democratic uh, Party elites, you know, because their constituents are increasingly non-white, they have less of a risk now. Maybe not at the, at the general, uh, the you know, national election level, but you know, in terms of um, you know the local constituents, so they, they have less of a risk of alienating, uh, you know, by engaging in, in, I guess, very much race-based rhetoric, you know, very much racially egalitarian rhetoric. They have less of a there's less of a, a political cost to doing that now. Uh, and um, definitely ap appealing to, uh, you know, um, I guess group victimhood is, uh, I would argue, is a galvanizing force. It's a mobilizing force, uh, you know, and that, you know, has political utility. Uh, so if that type of strategy uh, starts to become less politically costly, uh, because now whites are moving, you know, they're just con comprise a smaller constituency within the Democratic Party, then you're going to see a lot more of that. So that that's definitely part of, um, I, I would argue, the awakening. But I guess going back to my main thread, which is that, you know, I saw that, you know what, okay, what, if you want to believe they're racist, whatever, that's fine. But the point is, is that Trump attitudes, the attitudes of Trump voters, the racial attitudes, are not that different from uh, I guess the their attitudes in 2012. In some ways, and some that voters actually are not, slightly, yeah, yeah, and, and so, voters, so, in, in some similar. ways they're actually. In some ways, they're actually even yeah. slightly more liberal. Um, I think so too. I think uh, I think Trump <laughs> actually pushed them in a little bit of a of a woke direction. I mean, maybe maybe we'll talk about that. 
So on the other hand, while you don't have this massive or I guess really uh, conspicuous departure from the past when it comes to Trump voters, I mean, in terms of their attitudes being different from Romney voters in yeah, 2012. So, 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 liberals so, so, I, so I realized that, you know what, this isn't really the big story here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, okay, maybe Trump is, is a story that, that definitely deserves research and, and you know, and, and further investigation because he's very an unconventional president. But um, when I looked over at the other side of the political aisle, uh, I saw, and I started, I just, you know, initially started with just the American National Election Studies data, which had data for 2012 and 2016 and previous years. And I first was just analyzing 2012 and 2016, and I saw that, wow, there is really um, a really, really huge leap in the leftward direction, you know, among Clinton voters and among not only just Clinton voters, but self-identified liberals and self-identified uh, white Democrats uh, in general. Uh, you know, for example, the proportion that, uh, you know, wanted to, you know, to support an increasing immigration jumped uh, around 15 to 20 percentage points, you know, in the space of four years. Uh, racial resentment, which I think is very much a mislabeled uh, scale, uh, that among white Democrats and liberals declined to its lowest level on record. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about um, what the racial the racial resentment scale is is what because this is this is this is a just I think a textbook example of a of a academic bias. Go ahead. Yeah, you used an abuse of a scale. Well, the racial resentment measure, uh, the idea of a racial resentment scale. I mean, it's previously gone by the name modern racism, symbolic racism. Uh, the idea is that. Uh, prejudice in America, racial prejudice or, you know, animus against blacks, uh, contrary to conventional wisdom or I guess conventional data where you ask people, would you vote for a black president? Would you have a black person as a neighbor? You know, obviously, clearly America's become much more tolerant uh, on a lot of these just, uh, you know, basic measures of prejudice. But the idea was, or the question that these, that these I guess, architects of these scales uh, were wrestling with was that, why is America saying that they are white America embracing of equality while at the same time they're not adopting or endorsing all these racially liberal policies that could bring us greater to a racially egalitarian society? So the idea was is that prejudice didn't uh, ebb. Uh, it, 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 didn't, it, did not, it was not on the decline. What, it, what actually what happened was it actually just cloaked itself it cloaked itself in race neutral or ostensibly race neutral values right. of um, of uh, individualism and self-reliance, uh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Uh, and the idea was is that modern prejudice is um, about it's, it's animus towards blacks for uh, not adhering to traditional American values uh, or the Protestant work ethic, uh, for instance, and that uh, really, uh, I mean, there's, there's debates even among, I guess, <laughs> those that, I guess, the woke academics about you know, the social dominance orientation, like the social dominance people, social dominance orientation is a theory pretty much, long story short, that society's divided into camps that either want to maintain the existing hierarchies or they want to uh, depose uh, or uh, I guess attenuate existing hierarchies. But social dominance people say that 
the modern racism, symbolic racism, racial resentment, these are all just masks for white people wanting to justify their yeah. uh, you know, place in the hierarchy. So 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 social scientists, they you know, they they they're concerned about racism. Uh, and one of the founders of the symbolic racism was David Sears, who actually taught my intro to a political uh, psych course on uh, at the um, at UCLA. Nice guy. He's actually, you know, he's very fair. So something we say this person's biased or that person's biased. Often, often they're very fair and they're very nice in person. So I always he was on my dissertation committee. I got along with uh, 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 Dr. Sears very well. Um, but basically, the idea was they um, so people wouldn't answer like that. They think black people are inferior or they don't want right. to associated with black people. And so they, right. they they started saying, okay, racism has shifted. And the kind of questions that they call symbolic racism, um, just looking at the scale, right? So some of them are like Irish, Italian, Jewish, and other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should mm-hmm. do the same. You agree with that? Right. You're higher on racism. Right, right, so right, right. Black leaders have been try, pu- trying to push too fast. Other fields, they haven't pushed fast enough. What do you think? Okay, if you think Al Sharpton well, is asking yes. too much, you're also you're also a kind of racist, right? Right, right. So the, I guess what you're getting at is that the, uh, the I guess the architects of these kills embedded their I guess moral assumptions and moral values into them, and they use that as the baseline. Yes, uh, and then they and they which said, deviation and they, indicates like racism. So pretty much, unless you adopt these liberal worldview on race, you are. Uh, I, I guess by this metric, at least, uh, yeah. uh, racism. Now, what's interesting about the racial resentment scale is that even if you accept its construct validity as being a valid measure of racism, <laughs> and let's just concede that for argument's sake, uh, what has been overlooked for years is that the scale doesn't just range from, um, you know, the absence of racism to I guess, you know, really uh, intense or I guess maximal levels of racism, it actually ranges from anti-white, I guess, sentiment, <laughs> believe it or not, anti-white sentiment at the bottom to, uh, I guess, I would argue that the racial resentment is probably capturing, if you are a bona fide racist, you will probably score high on the racial resentment scale. Uh, but not everybody scores, you know, high on the racial resentment scale isn't actually, or at least as I would understand it, a, a racist. Um, but one of the things that's overlooked is that, uh, and this is why I, I think the racial resentment scale might be better, uh, or it's equally plausibly should be thought of as racial sympathy uh, scale because, um, or I would even argue maybe it should be called wokeness, because once you go towards the bottoms of the scale, one standard deviation below and, and, and lower than that, uh, you start to see that people um, uh, are likely to have a pro-black favoritism and are likely in some cases to discriminate against whites uh, okay. as well. You know, even, so, even, yeah. So in 2014, I mean, to be clear, so whites, so when we were, when me and you were uh, growing up, the differences between white Democrats and white 
conservatives were not that great in the sense they, they were all sort of, they were all to the left of say where the New York Times editorial board was. Like if you said to most America, uh, white Americans in uh, 2005, 2010, do you think we should have more or less immigration or bl- discrimination is the main reason black people cannot get ahead. Um, the yeah. the, the wh- white liberals and white conservatives would take a very, what today would be considered a right wing view. And so what has happened on these things is that um, the right has basically stayed where they are, maybe gone a little bit more, you know, conservative or quote unquote racist, as as you know, the New York Times yeah. Royal Board might put it. Right. While the uh, uh, white liberals and white Democrats, and there are fewer white Democrats actually, so a lot of white people have left the Democratic Party. We, we should say that. Yeah. But but the substantial, uh, the ones who do remain, have become more left wing than minorities themselves on these issues. Right. More uh, more uh, into the idea that black people cannot get ahead because of racism than black people themselves are. On immigration, I think I I don't know if they're to the left of Hispanics, but they're maybe they're maybe maybe close close there. So that that's the greater yes. Right. That that's the the last ten years last five to ten years among white liberals. What's yes yes uh, yeah I'm sorry uh, I guess to I guess uh, get back on, on the main track here. Um, yeah, the, the main awoking is essentially uh, I guess to put it in a simple sentence for you know for the past few de- for the past three four decades white Democrats. Uh, and white conservatives, uh, this is more so on immigration than race, but also somewhat on race, they were very, very similar on their attitudes towards immigration. Uh, and uh, then in the past uh, 10 years, everything that, uh, I guess, uh, uh, status quo ante has completely uh, uh, just collapsed. And now uh, white Democrats, white liberals have completely gone radically, I would say, or, or considerably in the other direction, Whereas conservatives, Republicans have stayed where they are, um, which, uh, you know, in, when you obviously read the media, that's not the perception you get. You, the perception right. you get is yeah. that the Republican, Republicans and the conservatives have lost their mind. They're more racist than ever. But really, it's just that, you know, they've stayed, they're treading water, you know, they, they're not really moving. Whereas um, the Democrats and liberals, they've moved so far to the left that, Previously, attitudes that they held themselves are now considered racist, and Republicans just by or conservatives just because they haven't moved, and the Democrats have shifted so far. Now they appear to be more extreme than they really are, yeah, yeah. when in fact they just haven't caught up with Democrats and liberals. Yeah, yeah, uh, and so, it's it's not just yeah, it's not just race, but it's also things like gay marriage, gender identity, feminism. Yes, they both yes. have gone together, right? Yeah, yeah. There's been other. There's another study that came out that, that pretty much concluded as much as I do that on a lot of these issues, uh, on almost all issues actually, uh, there's a few exceptions. The Democrats have moved to the left. I mean, Republicans and conservatives have also moved to the left on yeah. a lot of these issues, especially gay marriage. Gay marriage. Stuff like it's that. just that yeah. Democrats and liberals have just moved a lot quicker towards the left and. I would say that a lot of polarization today is the liberals resenting the fact that conservatives aren't keeping the pace and conservatives and Republicans resenting the fact that liberals and Democrats have jumped so far ahead. 
well, that have moved it, so quickly. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little more complicated than that. So there's a guy named. Walt, I, I know, I know. I, yeah, of course, it always is. Yeah. But but sometimes when we talk about polarization, who's moving right, who's moving left, we sort of get confused and we talk about different things. So on these racial and gender issues, you're right that there's been polarization uh, on one side, the left. What these people who sort of talk about the extremism of the Republican Party are talking about. So people like Norm Ornstein, who's like a guy who write, works for AEI and he's a Congress watcher and he he writes books and articles about uh, how he yeah, his argument yeah. is that there's there's one party that's at fault for most of our problems and that's the Republicans. Yeah. And he'll point yeah. to stuff like Obamacare. So for example, Heritage Foundation, uh, it's much has been made about Heritage Foundation once endorsing a uh, public option or a, not a public option, a, a mandate, right? A mandate to buy health insurance. And by two, when Obama tried to do that, Obama, when Obamacare had like a relatively moderate proposal, the Republicans just went straight up and just just opposed it um, uh, completely. If you look at something like foreign policy, you compare, say, George W. Bush and George Bush, um, the senior, right? You have the guy who wouldn't go into Baghdad, right. and the guy who who went into Baghdad and wanted to invade a bunch of other countries. And, and then I think if you look at something like Mike Pompeo's um, foreign policy, I won't even call it Trump's foreign policy, I'll call it Pompeo's foreign policy. It, it's a big break from what, it, uh, what Republican establishment was 20, 30 years ago, just much more in a militarized uh, direction. Um, and so what they when they say the Republic and they, and they talk about other things too, like uh, uh, procedural stuff, which we don't we don't have to get into. So it's interesting that the Republican Party has stayed where it is on the social issues. The Democrats have moved left. The Republican yes. Party this is not connected to their voters at all. There's no evidence that the Republican voters have become more hawkish, um, as far as I know, and definitely no evidence that they become more economically right wing. Um, but the elites in Washington seem to have gone more right wing on these issues, independent of what their voters are doing. And their voters seem to be staying the same on the, the really motivated by this cultural stuff and motivated by this cultural stuff, uh, but not, not really getting anything for it. And the people in Washington aren't really resisting very much the, the cultural changes, the stuff that's under the federal government control. So this, this is a very strange situation. I think we're talking past each other and that's why both sides can say, well, the other side is radicalizing and both are right, but well, they're talking about different things. Well, yeah. And, and it's also like these questions of who is responsible for polarization are really, a lot of it depends on where do you want to start? You Where do you want to draw the starting point? You know, do you want to start it, you know, around the time of the Civil Rights Act? Yeah. Uh, do you want to start it uh, in the 1980s or, you know, in the 1990s with Newt Gingrich? Like, it, it, some of this is tangentious in the sense that I don't like this party, so I want to draw the starting point to a point where I can clearly attribute all of this polarization to them. And that definitely, uh, I, I think, uh, is a part of this. I, I do think, and that, that's why I said I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on race and immigration. Um, and uh, I could say that at least on these policy positions, the Republicans and conservatives have shifted uh, definitely uh, the least. Yeah, I think like four uh, years ago, I saw maybe four or five years ago, I saw Ted Cruz on uh, Stephen Colbert. And uh, yeah, he asked uh, Colbert's like, oh, you're opposed to gay marriage. This was like already like five years ago and Cruz really didn't want to talk about it. And he just goes, it's a, you know, it's a state issue. He just tries to sort of hide behind that. And then Colbert is pressing him a little bit and he's like, oh, so the states can just do something discriminatory or evil. And I, I just remember Cruz not handling it well. Cruz not, can't, he can't say he's for gay marriage. He can't give a substantial well, argument against gay marriage. All he can say is the states can do it. 
um, the states should handle. Well, you see, I mean, yeah. and to be fair, you find the same thing among, surprisingly, uh, you know, as, as, I guess they're the only party uh, that is maybe semi-anti-woke. <laughs> but even the Republican Party, um, they didn't really engage in any anti-woke message. I mean, it's not like when George Floyd, for instance, the George Floyd incident happened, you had Republican leaders saying, uh, you know, the this is the media is, is stoking a race war that really isn't this is really isn't the biggest problem you know uh, collecting back you, you you couldn't have people i know trump said that well you know more white people get shot by the police that i think that maybe that was his maybe quintessential i guess anti-woke remark but yeah. you really didn't i mean you had mitt, mitt romney marching with the protesters uh on the debate stage, uh, you know, with Biden, Trump, when you ask about systemic racism, it's not like he really, I guess, challenged the concept because, frankly, I don't think he even knows what systemic racism really well, means. He, he agrees with it. Yeah, if they uh, asked and, a few times, and, and, would say, I'm, I'm sure there is. It's horrible. Yeah, it's he was trying. He was trying to, I guess, <laughs> outflank Biden by saying, "Oh, you're responsible for putting all these blacks in, in prison and incarcerating them." So there wasn't, uh, I guess. Trump may, may, you know, some would say he's, I guess, fueled wokeness, but he actually isn't also the biggest, uh, I guess, most explicit enemy of, you know, at least as a rhetorical enemy yeah. of wokeness. That's he really, I uh, he and, kind of uh, dropped the yeah. baton on that. Yeah, I remember Trump when 2016, he like, uh, he gradually became much more mainstream in like what he would say on these things. So I remember when he was running in the 2016 campaign, once they asked him about BET, like somehow Black Entertainment Television uh, came up and like, they're like, they criticized you on BET where he's like, well, somebody was saying the other day, why don't they have a white people entertainment, you know, show? And like, so he would say just like this yeah. one-off stuff that was sort of like, yeah. you know, just very like would get people riled up. It seemed crazy. And it was, it was like the same thing with foreign policy. Like when they would ask him like, oh, Putin kills people he'd be like yeah we kill people too and yeah like, yeah both yeah. on the race stuff and the foreign policy stuff he was he was broken in he'd become like he would still be trump in the sense he would say the election was fake and like you know there's uh it's being stolen and he tweets stuff about about obama killing like not really killing bin laden killing a body double or something like that. he would tweet this right right like, right crazy right. stuff but on race and on some certain other topics like foreign policy, right. he just become a completely mainstream Republican. It was fascinating to watch his. He was a piece, yeah. He was very. He said to that, yeah. He was very, and that's why um, when people said, "Well, a lot of these attitudes are shifting," uh, especially on, 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 you know, attitudes towards blacks are shifting because of Trump. It's like Trump barely spoke about. I mean, the most he said about blacks during the uh, his twenty sixteen run was, "What do you have to lose?" <laughs> I mean, you can you can maybe uh, argue that his uh, remarks about you know Hispanics and Mexicans, you know, were, were definitely a driver of sympathy. For, but when it comes to actually African Americans, he didn't really say much. Yeah. Well, one <laughs> thing honest, did, and, yeah, in many ways, he was more PC than like uh, Mitch McConnell would have been. So he would get up there, and every one of his talking points would be lowest black black unemployment in history, lowest and Republicans did it right, right, exactly like that before. And Asian American, well, Asians like you know, as like a, 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 like uh, anyone at you know Manhattan right. Institute or Colette will tell you, are not are not poor um, by uh, compared to whites. But he still would do this uh, this 
this kind of um, this kind of pandering that went beyond yes. what Republicans done Pierce. Trump was like, you know, you could have said in 2016, there was one thing I liked about Trump was he was anti-woke. I'm like, okay, well, he's stupid and he's yeah. unstable. But by 2020, he was also like more woke or just as woke as the Republican uh, establishment. And and by that point, I was like, what, what's, what, is, what is sympathetic about this guy? Now, I will say in some policy areas, especially near the end, I, like, I don't know like who got control over these policy levers, but like about a month before he was going to leave office, after he'd already lost the election, there was a headline in the New York Times, Trump getting ready to do away with disparate impact. Now, if you know what disparate impact is, that is absolutely huge. It's the the government uh, under the Civil Rights Act do, under disparate impact doesn't have to prove that you intended to discriminate against any way. Right. You just had to do something right. that ended up with you hiring more white people than black people, Hispanics, or men more than women. And so right, this, right, this right. is a huge bureaucratic thing. And it was they started the process a month before he's leaving office, <laughs> and it's not, it's not going to go through. You know, obviously now. And then the critical rate, uh, race theory executive order, which is another thing that could have now uh, it was blocked by some judge in california if he had done it early in his presidency it could have gone to the supreme court probably and now you've got a you know a conservative you've got a conservative court and they could have upheld it but biden's gonna get rid of it anyway so so it's moot at this point so like he'd be completely pc and then at the end you know just because he's not paying attention he's doing all these like anti-woke things like in the last month or two of his presidency and then he's just gone (laughs) what is what a weird well because he's not operating on principles or i guess a conviction you know uh, that this is bad for the social fabric of society it's that okay i'll i'll oh i mean if he's even making these decisions about these executive orders oh of course that, so. well, he's looking at this seems impact. to be yeah. no. <laughs> popular you know it, yeah he doesn't he doesn't know and that's why it was kind of embarrassing in the, in the, in the base stage to talk about you know I, I don't know if he actually said critical race theory i think maybe, maybe he did but there's no chance in hell that he knows what that that is you know he just thought that okay, this is something that would appeal. But and that's the thing when you're talking about, you know, having a concerted effort to maybe do it even before, uh, you know, I guess well, well before the month he, he leaves before office. Well, he's not operating on principles uh, here. I mean, he's not operating at a principled stand against wokeness. This is really just about him, you know, and 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 getting, uh, I guess, maintaining support or rallying uh, his base. Right. Um, the uh... so. Uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, this, I mean, yeah, so there's a fascinating, I mean, it relates to the uh, uh, Republican Party and sort of, yeah, so th- there was never, a, there's never been a real challenge. There's stuff going on, like, I don't know, like, who, if it was Bill Barr or it was some of these sort of ideological conservatives were get this stuff, they don't like disparate impact, like conservative justices will rule against it if have a chance, if they have a chance, especially the really conservative ones, maybe like John Roberts is a little bit, uh, would be a little bit squishy. Um, so he was basically, you know, it was basically, I think, the median, like as far as like policy and anti wokeness, what a Republican administration would have been, would, uh, would have been. and it, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't particularly uh, strong against these things. And then in rhetoric, right. he was more left wing um, than uh, than a typical Republican uh, politician. Oh, and, yeah, and, and and this is why like the Republican, you know, it's sort of top-down opinion. And even, especially after the George Floyd protest, even among Republicans, there was movement towards more liberal attitudes on race, right? And it was, yes, yes, yes. And then, it, uh, and then it bounced back quickly. The, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the uh, This is actually the latest chapter that I'm writing, which is the dissertation is about, you know, what, what was the effect of the Floyd incident on racial attitudes? And uh, 
which is an important chapter because racial attitudes are, are at least in some schools of thoughts are, are presumed to be uh, more or less stable uh, across uh, the lifespan. You know, they crystallize early in one's young adulthood and then, you know, they more or less stay in place. Uh, but I, I mean, part of my dissertation is showing that that's not true and that we've seen all this change, really radical change. And the question was, is, you know, what would the effect of uh, the Floyd incident? I would say that the initial wave of the Great Awakening was brought upon by the first BLM, uh, a part of it, uh, you know, uh, it definitely gave a lot of energy was the, uh, the Ferguson protest and really the mainstreaming of Black Lives Matter activism in 2014. Uh, so the question was, is, you know, what effect would the Floyd incident have? And I was able to, um, unfortunately, there was a survey uh, that was uh, ministered every single day, pretty much for the past year, that allowed me to conduct a natural experiment to see, you know, how did the Floyd incident affect uh, attitudes the day after or the week after, uh, compared to the weeks and days before. And we yeah, can uh, find among Zach. Before before we get to that, let, let's back let's back up a little bit because uh, sure. we talked about the Great Awakening. We talk about the shift in uh, uh, liberal yeah. white liberal attitudes. Um, and democratic, uh, white democrat attitudes. What was going on in the media at the time? Because this is this is the most fascinating. This is the most fascinating thing I think of the Great Awakening. There's two parts of it, right? There's the shift in opinion. There's also the media, yeah. um, and the media changed. Right, right. Can you speak about that. Yeah. Um, never before. And my tablet magazine article only has data going back to 1970. I've actually looked into previous years going back to 1954. Never before. Um, in uh, at least as far back as 1954 in American history, has there been so much discussion about uh, race, uh, racial discrimination, uh, racial oppression, racial injustice in the media that there was in the past 10 years? Uh, and it's really not just that they're talking about race and more, but in the same terms that they were decades ago. Uh, they're also, um, whites are, are becoming a lot more of uh, uh, the conversation. Uh, there's definitely a lot greater discussion, a much greater attention to disparities. Um, and disparities more today than in decades past are now being discussed in terms of oppression and bias and discrimination. Um, and the actual, the relationship between those you know, racial disparities uh, systemic racism, privilege, those relationships, if you look at the lexical relationships between the two and the New York Times corpus, they've gone up, uh, you know, uh, in, in the past year, and they were relatively more or less, uh, or at least they've never reached these heights in, in previous decades. So you have a much greater unprecedented focus, I would say, uh, you know, on racial uh, issues. Yeah. So, uh, so when you, um, you're, you're, you're underselling it a bit because when you look at these graphs, this is why this took off. It just jumps out at you. Sometimes <laughs> the effect is sort of hard to see of something, but this is like yeah, okay, yeah. in the New York Times, Washington Post over time, how often the word systemic racism appears. It's a flat line. People are moving my hand right now. People can't yes, see it's yes. a flat line. 2011, it just goes straight up. It's like, the, it's like the price of Bitcoin. Right. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's like COVID. It looks like, it looks like a COVID, uh, you know, <laughs> the curve. Uh, yeah. uh, and, uh, no, you, you're absolutely right that, uh, for example, uh, the term, uh, people of color, for instance, yeah. 
Now that term, well, I guess in the 1960s or 1950s, you had maybe Southern segregationists that were calling colored people or maybe even just non-segregated. But now, I mean, colored people obviously was ultimately deemed, uh, I guess, bigoted and um, fell out of favor. And then we went to uh, uh, blacks or, um, and then it was African-Americans. Uh, and now, uh, I mean, people of color, I guess, it was used to a very, very modest degree or modest uh, frequency level in previous years. But if you, like you said, if you look at the graph, it's more or less a flat line uh, across uh, really four decades. Uh, and then in the past 10 years, you see this explosion in the use of people of color, communities of color, marginalized groups, uh, even the word community. I mean, it's like a, would the communities not exist in the 1950s? Yeah, I like how they have like intelligence community like that. Like now they're like uh, like an identity politics. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And not just race, um, I mean, because we're, we're, we're talking about race a lot, but it's also patriarchy sexism this stuff yes, takes, takes yes. off at the exact same time too. yes yes and and, and also immigration yeah. has become a lot more associated uh it's become a lot more framed in racial terms or i guess anti-racial terms i guess from the uh media uh you know or at least at least the new york times publication board standpoint uh they uh immigration is now if you have an article on immigration or you uh Immigration, it will not only mention immigration, but it's also likely or more likely today than ever before to also include a mention of racism, bigotry, xenophobia, uh, where this wasn't the case in the 1990s. And as we were discussing before, I mean, the Democrats and Republicans were more or less united in the 1990s on immigration. And the 1996 uh, Democratic Party uh, platform, uh, they were boasting about the fact that uh, you know, previous presidents talked tough on illegal, you know, illegal aliens. They even used the word aliens. And, you know, nobody did anything. And here, Bill Clinton, you know, he finally delivered. He has rounded up 80,000 criminal aliens and really uh, trying to, uh, you know, use this as a way of, uh, I guess, uh, drumming support for the party. And that was in 1996 when I was nine years old. Uh, and obviously, you could, can't even imagine uh, well, you can't even imagine the Republican Party putting this language in their uh, platform about boasting about the number of illegal aliens they've rounded up and sent back. And or, yeah, <laughs> so it, it's really um, the pace of change is something that uh, I feel like a lot of people may not appreciate how quickly things are moving. I mean, social media is a big part of this uh, conversation uh, as well. Um, I mean, if you look at the, uh, you know, the rates of social media adoption, you yeah. know, the number of people but, that use Twitter. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That, that has, that, that, that's got up too. The, the, I mean, the question is, I'm, I'm looking at some of this data. I'm looking at your dissertation, which is not, not finished yet, but I'm looking at some of the yeah. graphs you put together. So you have something called the racial, uh, you have a, something called a racial equal, uh, equalitarian media. Equalitarian media. So this is like an, this is an article that mentions blacks and mentions something about disparity and gap and racism. And you track how many, articles in the New York Times fit this description over time. And it's usually like less than 1%. So from 19, you have 1955, it's like close to 0% of New York Times articles yeah. meet this criteria. Uh, then it goes up in the 1970 around 1%, and it never gets like much above 1%. And so, I mean, that's already seems like a lot to be racial gaps, be 1% of all coverage in the New York Times. You know, they cover travel and sports. And I don't, yeah. know, <laughs> I don't know if you have, you have sports in, in your data set and stuff like that. Or is it just news articles? Well, it's really it's 
well, it's really it's it's everything but ads. Uh, everything. Okay, so this court. is like so before the yeah. Great Awakening, <laughs> the New York Times one percent of all articles mentioned racial gaps in subway. So sports, metro, you know, uh, uh, movie reviews, uh, cooking, whatever, whatever else the New York Times has, and so that's that, that's around one percent. That's high. Then about two thousand eleven, it shoots up, and now like the last year, I think you have is. Uh, uh, I think, you know, you have the last years about 2015 or 2020. And somewhere, somewhere there, there's two lines here. I'm trying to figure out which one is actually measuring. But, but, but they're saying the same thing in that um, uh, they're saying that basically it's now two, it's over 2%. Right, it's over two percent of all articles. Something close to two point. It's actually two point about two point five percent. And so that's yeah. It's talking about racial gaps of everything going on in the world. You know, foreign policy. What's going on in Africa? What's going on in Asia? Well, you know, what the sports scores are. What the weather is. I don't know if the New York Times has weather. Um, but yeah, that's, that's an incredible. That's well, taking up a lot of brain space. Yeah. Right. And this is this is well, not the totality of wokeness. If you added, you know, the feminism stuff, race related well, yeah, yeah. percent of all articles. I mean, this is this is amazing. Just race related has anything about black or African American or racial? Yeah, it used to be around ten percent. Now it's about twenty five percent. Now black, it, black is so black could mean other things too, right? Black could mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, Blackhawks like the. Uh, hockey team or something yeah like yeah 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 but, I, I struggled to find a way to i guess yeah that term without although the, maybe black hawks is one word not necessarily but but like black anything a black painting or whatever but yeah regardless it went it doubled you know it was around 10 percent would say black or african-american or something like that and now it's 25 percent, right just in the last 10 years incredible yeah. percentage of brain space like if people say oh it distracts you from the class war well it distracts you from everything if race is now 25 percent of what you're thinking about you don't have room for foreign policy taxes whatever that, that, that that's that's your entire worldview right well that's the thing it, it, it's just that the way that i guess the just for that is that climate change environment is now infused with uh you know i guess racial yeah, I guess I guess, right. objectives you know where in that where these things used to be completely, I guess, disconnected. Uh, now everything, um, and, and and that's part of one of the changes that's occurred is that, uh, I mean, especially even just turning on Netflix these days, you know, you have a whole category for black voices. You know? <laughs> yes, that uh, was that was post Floyd. I, I started going that Amazon Audible, but, uh, Amazon Prime watching, uh, Netflix. Yeah, they, 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 it's like a cat. It's like its own. Yeah, yes. Like action and on Amazon. TV. Yeah, all all of these yeah. services. I even was seeing on PBS on YouTube TV was, you know, kids talk about racism and you know inequity and it's just like oh my god I I, I think. God, I'm a millennial and grew up in the age where PBS was just Mr. Rogers and uh, you know Sesame Street. <laughs> well, so but, you know uh, Sesame, Sesame Street has gone has gone woke. Yeah, I, I'm sure Sesame Street has <laughs> gone uh, woke. I'm sure there's a transgender uh, puppet, uh, you know, on the cast now. But uh, <laughs> what? So the, I guess the upshot is all this is you can't avoid this anymore. Um, for example, in the 1990s, I mean we. Just by happenstance, in 1992, or excuse me, 1991, it was just by happenstance, somebody had a recorder uh, and was, uh, you know, recording the Rodney King beating. You know, it never would have been, you know, made national news, you know, at, at that time. Right. Uh, nowadays, um, there's really no, uh, especially the tools of social media have facilitated the nationalization of the local. Uh, and uh, I guess the local also becomes the national and the national becomes the local. <laughs> and so 
a lot of these, um, I guess, racial incidents or, you know, that would never really get any limelight, you know, just because there was no means, there was no means of exposure. Now it's on everybody's front page of the news, you know, you know, barbecue Becky, you know, Amy Cooper. Yeah. And that reinforced the, impre- the impression that um, racism is just everywhere. Uh, that it is a pervasive force that is really confronting and hobbling, you know, uh, a non-white person, every, you know, the second, the moment they step out in the street. And it's very selective. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's very, I'm just going to say it's very selective because the, uh, uh, there's a nationalization of local news, but not, not all stories. When uh, murder rate went up in 2020, that didn't become much of an issue. It's funny. I mean, it's funny when you turn up with Black Lives Matter, you turn on Fox News and Fox News just becomes like talking all day about black on black crime. And, you know, they're, they're, this is the only time they, they care that much about it. They I mean, they might care at other times. Um, but, you know, they're, they're uh, so they're, they're you know, they're, they become obsessed with it. But the, me- the prestige media is not focused on these local crime issues. They're focused on somebody said something great, you know, like a police shooting. Okay. But it can be even like, somebody racially profiled something stuff that is just like in a huge country is like gonna, right. it's inevitably gonna going to happen. Yeah. You're going to have instances like this. And that's part of the effect of the awakening, or at least from a cognitive perspective is the availability heuristic. And the fact that because these things are being reported more, they are painting the impression of people. When people answer a polling question and, you know, how much discrimination against they're against blacks, how, uh, you know, um, how many uh, are, you know, how likely is it that the police discriminate against blacks uh, versus, you know, a similarly situated white person? The obviously the availability of this in the media discourse, especially the social media discourse, is going to affect, you know, is going to inform someone's response or someone's perceptions on these issues. Um, and uh, definitely, especially the ways these are framed and the language that they use to that kind of catastrophizes them. Uh, this definitely is a part of the uh, the awakening uh in terms of really yeah uh, i mean if you read the news for the past years it seems like you know racism is on you know <laughs> and i know there's probably plenty of people that debate and contend that yeah it is uh i would argue that uh no there's been these instances for for decades and now social media has really been especially everybody has camera phones now now everything is going viral and now it seems like because now a local incident in the boondock in the middle of nowhere can now make national headlines where it was never like this before. Um, and now um, my dissertation focuses on the psychological or the moral psychological impact of this. Well, you wrote, on, I mean, you wrote, um, a, you wrote a tablet tablet article that tried to get into the causation. So you have two things happening at once, right? And this is what you do as a social science. You find these things happening at once. The media is talking more about race and um, gender and all these other, and all these other uh, PC woke topics, transgender, whatever. And at the same time, white liberal opinion is shifting. And you wrote an article in Tablet and you get into this dissertation, which causing which, because you could say it's top down, the media is making liberals uh, more left wing, or you could say it's bottom up, there's this change in society and the New York yeah. Times is just <laughs> right. And right. You, you go into the data and it's not like we just don't know, it's like, there's there's an answer. One theory fits the data better than the other. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm able to show in my dissertation that the discussion of um, or the frequency 
uh, increases in the frequency of, uh, rather than I call it racial equality, I'll just call it woke media, increases in woke media precede, uh, you know, they uh, come before increases in wokeness or racial liberalism among white Democrats uh, and liberals. Um, and this has been the case not only in the recent awakening, I mean, there's been other mini awakenings uh, in previous decades, <laughs> um, in the 1980s, yeah. uh, in the 19th. So you've had these mini awakenings uh, that also follow increases in discussion of, uh, you know, these woke racial uh, topics. And uh, this has been the case, uh, or at least it's, it's, I can see going back to 19, um, my data set begins in 1954. Um, now, What's interesting is that this effect it appears to primarily hold among Democrats and liberals, where it is less clear whether racial attitudes among conservatives are similarly responsive to such increases um, in, uh, in these media trends. Um, and uh, yeah, so for, I, for, non, for non-social scientists, just so we were clear, so Zach is going in every year and he's looking at what the New York Times is talking about. And we also have data from yearly what people think about race. So you're, you're, you're often polling people um, on racial issues on the same uh, over and over again, and you can track public opinion. And it could be the case that when public opinion shifts, then the New York Times shifts. You could, you could imagine something like that. But it's not right. fine. You find if the, you know right. how the New York Times is ta- how much the New York Times is talking about race, then white liberals become more liberal on these racial issues. So it's not it's not simply it it, it is it's right, right, top right, down right. model of public opinion. It's not bottom up. Um, you know, I, I saw it's important to stress this point because I saw Ezra Klein um, like talk about like uh, uh, PC and liberalism, and his basic idea was, oh, people are have finding their voice and they're speaking more, and it's sort of like a bottom. No. It's, it's based on real experiences when really it's actually people yeah. like Ezra Klein and people in the media who are probably not Ezra Klein directly. Right. It's and a little more complicated. It's yeah. not like most white liberals read the New York Times. <laughs> Like a lot do actually, because the New York Times has gone, their subscriber, uh, uh, how many people subscribe to them has gone through the roof and the Washington Post too. So these papers actually have become more important, but it's it's top down, I think, where somebody reads the New York Times, like professors or like, you know, the more literate um, in people's liberal social circles, the people who are most paying attention, the most high information voters. And then yeah. that is probably filtering out to the broader white liberal community, much of most of which, like all communities, is probably not not that political or not thinking about politics all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why I, I think liberals uh, are unique is that they, uh, I mean, I guess we may, uh, I guess, decry the consequences, but they tend to be more educated, more politically sophisticated, um, uh, you know, uh, then more politically engaged, uh, or at least on these issues, than you know your average conservative who well, tends is, to be is older. That, is that true. I, I mean, the the uh, well, I mean, it's true in the Trump era that college educated whites have gone more democratic. Um, but was that true in the Romney era? I, I don't. I don't know. Like, I, I think they're more plugged into the New York Times and they're more plugged into the Washington Post. Um, but are they less knowledge? Like, do they know the three branches of government? Are they less likely to know like? who controls which House of Congress? Because, you know, these are questions a lot of people just, a lot of people just don't know. I, I don't know if that's actually true that you can just make that generalization. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm speaking right. of liberals. So self-identified liberals have been um, historically and in, in, in today 
uh, I guess, on average, more uh, educated. And here's the thing with these labels, you know, liberal conservatives can include not just, you know, I guess, fiscal conservatives who tend to be equally, I guess, cognitively sophisticated as, or if not more so than liberals, but you also have, you know, fundamentalists, social conservatives, religious conservatives. Uh, and um, what I see in recent data, what I could say is that liberals spend much more time on the internet or significantly more hours on the internet per week on the internet. They're more, they have more social media accounts than conservatives, even controlling for things like age. Uh, they have, um, uh, well, they really outnumber like, quite a lot, you know, conservatives on uh, Twitter and are also as a group more likely uh, to be, uh, I guess, consumers of, of Twitter. Um, conservatives tend to uh, prefer to get their news uh, through television, through if it's not Fox News, it's local TV broadcasts. Uh, they are less likely to say to report that their primary news source is the internet. Um, and uh, I think the internet and social media is where a lot of these ideas, uh, you know, or a lot of these, uh, I guess, these focuses on all these instances uh, go viral. And all, a lot of them where the moral outrage uh, is, uh, you know, is generated. There actually was a paper by, um, I better believe her name is Molly Crockett, which found that there is more morally outrageous, more morally evocative material. People, people come across it more on the internet than they do through other uh, or traditional news uh, mediums. Um, and uh, I, I think that has consequences if liberals are more plugged into that, you know, on the stuff on, on race and uh, uh, than uh, conservatives are. Um, well, uh, you're going to have, uh, <laughs> liberals are going to start acting differently. <laughs> you know, if you have the conversations changing on these platforms and you have these, you know, camera fronts everywhere, you have all these injustices that are being documented, this is definitely going to have an impact on, uh, you know, liberal psychology. Uh, conservatives, uh, well, not only are they, um, I guess, more relatively unplugged uh, from the digital media grid, than, uh, than, than liberals, but they also, um, uh, they don't have the same moral worldview that would make them become or act, you know, as, as liberals or white liberals are doing, uh, you know, which is expressions of shame and guilt in group directed anger, anger towards whites. Um, uh, but uh, I, I do think uh, that this is, I'm not saying that a conservative person can't, I mean, I, I know, I guess we were talking about the George Floyd data where we initially do see a bounce or an increase in racially liberal attitudes among conservatives in the aftermath of the Floyd uh, incident. Uh, but ultimately uh, that pattern uh, faded and decayed actually fairly quickly. Uh, and uh, you know, the second you have talk about violence and, and riots and, uh, you also have, an, you saw an increase in the percent that say that they uh, perceive discrimination against whites. And I think some of that could probably be attributed to the rhetoric at the Floyd protests, which are, you know, emphatically about, you know, tearing down white supremacy and white silence equals violence. And they're really just this racial essentialization. Um, and uh, I think that, you um, uh, this is really be, going to become toxic because I don't I don't think liberal conservatives are, are ever going to really join the woke train 
So I, I think uh, our I politics think, yeah. this year. I, I think you have to. I think you have to uh, differentiate because I think you're talking about within whites, right? Because if you uh, Hispanics tend to be lower uh, political knowledge, lower interest in politics. So I think when you do the racial thing, I think it actually Republicans do turn out. They do look uh, more. Uh, 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 liberals, uh, conservatives look more um, knowledgeable, but I think if you c control for race, uh, I think you're right. Right? Is that is that your view? Is that your uh, perception of the state of the the research? I'm sorry. When you control for race, what happens? What, what uh, well, it's it's you just have to when you control for whites, you're correct. So you're comparing white liberals and white conservatives. White liberals are more knowledgeable. Yes, yes, yes. And then if you well, interesting for, about if you want to talk about, I guess the attitudes. Every of, Democrat who's voting, yeah. Right. What's interesting about that, and you, you talked about before about Ezra Klein saying, oh, no, people are just talking more. What's fascinating is that in some of these time series, what you see is that white liberals or white Democrats move first. Um, move first in the sense that um, you'll have, for instance, in the general social survey, um, you know, some of the racial resentment items you'll have a 10% increase uh, between 2014 and 2016 on the percent that say that disagree that blacks should work their way up in social favors. Now, you do not see that same increase among black Democrats or even black liberals. That increase is lagged. I mean, that response of, of black attitudes is lagged by about a year. So they're about a year behind where uh, white Democrats and uh, white liberals were. And then they finally catch up. And I made a joke about it on you know, social media, you know, it's a white liberal talking to a black Democrat. It's like, come on, you guys are all oppressed. Did, didn't you guys watch the YouTube videos? You know, like what's going on here? And it's just like, well, if they're telling us they're oppressed and they're telling we're going to get all this, you know, all these benefits. So, you know, who am I to argue with that? You know, and then you can, you find that, uh, you know, they've, uh, uh, you know, they follow, it's a kind of like a follow the leader effect where you have all these liberal elites, white liberal elites in the media talking about all this stuff. Uh, this is kind of saturating, you know, the public discussion and this has become very available ultimately to relatively more disengaged uh, non-whites. Uh, and then they assimilate that, uh, I guess, they, they subsequently adopt those positions. What people don't realize is that in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, Blacks were actually becoming more conservative uh, on race uh, as uh, you know, and uh, really <laughs> the white Democrats or liberals kind of stayed in place uh, and you had blacks becoming more conservative. And I guess if you are against wokeness, you would kind of find um, you'd be disappointed of the fact that blacks were becoming more racially conservative when, you know, until, you know, the whites started becoming even more racially liberal and then they kind of just, took the back, uh, you know, the non-whites on their backs and, you know, move, they're kind of moving in unison yeah. uh, together. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, from what I could see in the data, you know, white Democrat and white liberal racial attitudes, and some of these increases are actually increasing at a quicker rate than uh, non-whites, or their, their non-white counterparts. Uh, so that, uh now at the point where, you know, the, and this is what's really fascinating is that for decades, non-white Democrats, non-white liberals were always more uh, racially liberal than, uh, you know, their even white liberal counterparts and, and white, uh, you know, uh, Democrats. Uh, and now that gap is completely gone, you know, and if anything, now it's the reverse. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, this has been uh, just fascinating to watch. I mean, you could obviously put a normative spin on it and say this is all terrible. It just really, what I'm getting at in my dissertation is, is that we're, this is really unprecedented in uh, American history. Um, and my, uh, I guess my goal is to provide a theory that uh, try to explain that. And we spoke about the role of the elites and, you know, uh, I guess, catering and, and engaging in more racialized rhetoric as a way of drumming up support among their increasingly non-white constituents. We spoke about the effect of social media. Um, but uh, one of the angles I push in my dissertation is that all of these influences, all these sources have an effect on what I think is at the root of um, liberals, I guess, pro-outgroup-ishness. Yeah, and you say liberals are unique in American in American history. I think they're unique in maybe human history. I mean, are, are there many yeah. human groups who like other groups more than? Well, that's what's themselves? that's that's what's frustrating. You said that everything in social science is about prejudice, and what's unfortunate is that is that the you know prejudice is really not exceptional. It's the norm. <laughs> you know, opposition to immigration is fairly the norm. You know, among most countries around the world. Uh, Really, the more interesting question, which never gets asked, uh, or seldom gets asked, uh, is well, why do people support increasing immigration? Why do uh, people, why do whites rate other minorities more warmly than they do whites? Uh, and not just relatively, but there are also increases in unfavorability that we see after the the Floyd incident. You have an increase in the number of uh, a proportion of white Democrats and liberals that say they have unfavorable views of whites, uh, which is really fascinating. Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I try to keep norms out of it. I don't I try to not to editorialize any of my dissertation. I'm just reporting the data, but this is really uh, something. And uh, the question of why, uh, why, uh, you know, what would bring someone to do that, uh, you know, is, is something I wrestle with oh, the, uh, when I trip. Yeah, so the so we, we you know establish the it's the media causing mass opinion shift. Now you touched on this a little bit, but I, let's be a little more explicit. What would you think caused the media early two thousands, two thousand eleven to two thousand fourteen or so uh, to go far left on these issues? Well, that, that is a very uh, tough question. Um, I, I I would say that. Um, and now I'm kind of being more, uh, I guess, speculatory uh, because I, I don't have a, a clear answer uh, about this. So I'm just giving my, what my assessment, you know, or I guess guesstimation is here, sure. is that, uh, well, you have the rise of, I, I think the rise of social media was was big, but I think you also had a new class of uh, of journalists. Uh, and a lot of these editorial pages that would come from a different uh, generation, uh, I guess. Um, um, and I think somewhat brought these actors with them to their, uh, uh, to their, uh, you know, to their jobs. And um, I think uh, also these are the types of people that tend to be plugged into social media a lot more. So they're obviously going to be more influenced by social media and social media has provided a tool for all sorts of activists, but particularly racial activists and social justice activists. Uh, so if you're a liberal journalist, uh, you know, you were educated at a liberal, you know, uh, university setting, you know, and, uh, you know, all what that entails. And then you come and you're working at a new publication and then you plug into social media and you see, uh, 
you know, videos of blacks being discriminated against, or you have blacks claiming, uh, you know, activists are, 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 are claiming that all these things are going on. And just being plugged into that, I think, had an effect on the um, on what was being reported and what was being focused on. Uh, you also had um, the uh, during the Obama years, you had uh, the Tea Party. And the response, or at least the media, or the left-wing media's response to the Tea Party was to racialize it all, was to say that this is really just the, you know, white racism that, you know, can't tolerate a black president. So to be fair, a little fair to the media, wasn't that sort of true? Um, I, I, you know, I just uh, listened to uh, Obama's, uh, he, he reads his memoirs. So I listened to the uh, the audiobook and I have a nice uh, uh, Twitter thread. I, I, I went, uh, looked up the parts that I really thought were interesting and I copied and pasted and put them in a, into a, a Twitter thread from the book itself. But something that really appears to hurt him is like birtherism, right? And what was that besides racism, right? What was, what, what was to, to say that the guy was not born in the United States, not eligible to be president when there was, there was zero evidence of it all? I mean, is there anything besides racism that, that could explain something like that? Yeah, well, some of it uh, is um, obviously birtherism. And here's the thing, you have to distinguish between those that, because I've actually written my first publication, uh, academic publication, was actually on birtherism, and it's linked to anti-vaccination attitudes and trutherism, and probably, I would guess, uh, QAnon. Uh, but uh, you have to distinguish between those that in, in, endorse birtherism uh, as for partisan reasons, uh, and some of those reasons could also be racial, and those that just are endorsing uh not only they endorse birtherism, they also endorse trutherism. You know, they also believe that 9-11 was an inside job. Yeah, but, but why uh, did also, it come up? Why, why was it for this president then rather than other presidents, right? Why, why was it not? Why, why was there no Bill Clinton birtherism or, or something like that? Don't, don't you think it's, it's his racial and it's, it's his background that, that did that? Well, I, I think it's his politics more than his race. I mean, I, I don't think you know, had Obama been Brent Carson, uh, I, I don't think that, you know, I, I don't think there would be. Well, there has, uh, to, be, yeah, there has to be a foreign connection. You're yeah, right. Yeah, it's I, not just his I, I, Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and that's the thing. I, I think the politics, uh, the opposition, you know, the political opposition comes first. Obviously, you can have some racial animus that also is, is uh, uh, imbued in that. But uh, I, I, I think um, uh, that's. I mean, a lot of the Tea Party's, I guess, angst, uh, the Obama administration, and this is uh, just based on uh, what my, uh, I guess, friend and colleague Emily Atkins has written, who did her dissertation on this phenomenon, is that a lot of, uh, you know, I guess people in the Tea Party were angry about Obama just bailing out what should have been losers, that should have been losers that allowed to fail, and they felt that really, that really violated their, 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 I guess, the principles of justice that they hold dearly that, you know, you shouldn't just be taking other people's money, uh, taxpayers' money, and just bailing out all these losers. That's not fair. And this is what really animated a lot of that, uh, which is yeah, feeling I, that. I think uh, that's true. I think, the, yeah, the left is, it's easy to exaggerate. I, I think the, the racism stuff was there, it was, but it was, it was too easy for well, the that's left. that's the thing. It's, it's always, and this is the thing. The left is right that you know racial considerations are definitely operative at some level, but I think what they oftentimes have a tendency of doing is to make it the only consideration as a means of absolving themselves from any introspection that would make them 
kind of like the tw- after the 2016 election. It wasn't that, you know what, maybe we went too far uh, yeah, in, yeah. in pushing this cultural agenda. It was that, no, we didn't go too far. It's just that racist America is not ready, you know, and they made or, it all the, about racism. Ru- right? And Russiagate, Russiagate was, was also something like this too. When they, 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 they needed a cope basically for losing and they started scapegoating foreign enemies, which you think is sort of more of a conservative thing, but liberals, you know, easily, they were so traumatized. They had that well, yeah. public is racist. And then they also had that, you know, Putin was pulling the strings. They were, they were, you know, they were grasping at something they could, <laughs> they could explain away. Yeah. yeah. Well, well that's the that. thing. It's it's much, and this is really holds across the board in general. It's much easier to blame other people than it is to take responsibility for your own shortcomings, you know, or to take stock of them. Uh, and I think uh, a large part of the post-Trump response was that uh, obviously there were. And listen, you're going to, and this here's the thing: you're never going to get rid of the whole end racism thing. You're never going to be able to. And this is part of our DNA: is you know we categorize the social world. We notice patterns were very. Uh, sensitive to, uh, you know, uh, I mean, this is really the thing is, is that, and I, this is where I, I really agree with Eric Kaufman is that a lot of this rhetoric on the left, uh, you know, racialized rhetoric is going to have the consequence of, uh, I would argue, legitimizing white identity politics uh, and white activism. Um, if, uh, and, and I think Biden's really not off to uh, a good start. Uh, I mean, I, and I read his racial economic justice plan. I always thought, oh my God, you know, this is just, because I, I guess myself, I'm a classical leftist at heart. I, I believe in class-based solidarity. I don't believe in that we need to um, really, uh, I guess, turn different you know, groups against each other or to blame, you know, uh, groups or you know, shortcomings for another group's, I, I guess, avarice or, uh, malevolence. I, I, I think this is really toxic. And I, I really think that a lot of this rhetoric, and this is why, you know, I disagree with like those like Ashley Jardina that really are worried about the rise of, of white. This is just a natural consequence of engaging in this type of rhetoric. If you're going to, uh, you know, prioritize brown and black owned businesses, you know, uh, well, you're going to make some people, some groups that are not included in those categories feel excluded that their interests and their well-being is not being considered. And then those groups are going to mobilize and fight for their interests. So it's really counterproductive if you want to lead to, I guess, a post-racial society. It could be very counterproductive to have different racial, racial groups warring against each other. And that's what I fear is going to happen in the years ahead. Uh, someone tells me I may be jumping ahead here because... We're still talking about the awakening, not maybe the future, but I, I think that is a likely outcome uh, down the road, um, you know, if not, we're not seeing the signs of it already, of, of these, these types of policies and this type of rhetoric policy direction that the Democratic Party is, yeah. is, is well, talking about in. Talking about Biden's uh, actions, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a nice uh, uh, segue into talking a little bit about current events. So yeah, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that and sort of where we see the country going. I mean, you know, congratulations on your discovery. I think it's going to help us sort of navigate the waters and sort of understand um, just, just, where we, just where we are going. Uh, so uh, uh, the Biden's executive orders, basically, it, it's, it's not anything that's too like, like 
it, it, it's so, I mean, there's, there's something. So he wants to prioritize uh, black, you know, black and minority businesses, women's businesses in, uh, in the, in the relief, yeah. COVID relief coming up. He also called on all government agencies to within 200 days, uh, file a report on their, um, on their, you know, their, uh, what they're doing for equity and what they can do to, you know, to improve, to root out sort of systemic racism. Um, yeah. And so I think this ends up just being, you have hiring, you have maybe uh, different hiring standards. Uh, blacks are already overrepresented in the federal government workforce, just because the government has been practicing affirmative action for, uh, uh, for, you know, generations now. Um, so, right. there, you know, there, there might be more of that. Um you know, where do you see, I, I'm fascinated. So like, okay, so 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the people were saying, well, immigrants are going to come to, and here's, here's why I think the critics of the left and the critics of wokeness have been completely wrong. So 15 okay. years ago, they said, immigrants are going to come and it's going to be a balkanization of society. You're going to have white people, right? And you're going to have um, Asians and Hispanics, and they're going to have their own grievances and blacks are going to have their own grievances. And like, uh, we're going to be paying more attention to sort of Hispanic issues over the years. And maybe this, you know, blacks will be less central to American politics and the black situation. And I think that yeah. was just completely wrong. Uh, the Asian and Hispanic sort of identity politics has been oversold by people like uh, Pat Buchanan and Samuel Huntington. They used to write books about how they're going to eventually secede from the union in California. I live in California. There's no, <laughs> there's no indication. We, yeah. I think uh, Hispanics are like 40 something percent of the population here. Asians are, are a high percentage of the population. Blacks are not that high, maybe five to 10%. And we hear more about black issues in California uh, than we do in uh, Hispanic Asian issues, even, even here. So it's yeah, yeah. fascinating. This organization never happened. It was just like the 1960s became frozen in time forever. And like you have some Hispanics going, becoming proud boys, right? And yeah, like, yeah. They're joining like the white far right. And yeah. the left is, the left never woke up from the 1960s. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same issues. It's it's police. It's, uh, you know, stereotyping. It's disparate impact. It's uh, inner right, right. crime. And their explanations of why that's happening and sort of the way they, they, they want to deal with it are just exactly the same, even if the rhetoric, like critical race theory and this and that has changed a little bit. Um, is, is that your impression too, that we're just sort of, there was this idea that there was this dynamism in American racial issues and it ended up just being sort of solidifying what was already there? Yeah, I mean, if you read, I don't know if you've read The Minority Rights Revolution, which is written by, uh, I forget his name, but he does a deep dive into, you know, I, I guess the, the genesis of all these policies, these equity policies and uh, like you said, you know they they do are uh, they are products of I guess the uh, post uh, uh, you know civil rights acts you know period the 60s and 70s uh, where um, and I, I think one of the uh, most uh, I guess uh, profound developments in that period was the notion that um, like you said disparate impact whereby just that the fact that there were disparities. Um, you know, between groups and, you know, in representation and in certain job sectors was, uh, you know, prima facie evidence that there was discrimination um, and that, you know, it was the, uh, I guess, the mandate of government agencies to, uh, or not only, you know, or those that are contracted by government agencies to, uh, you know, rectify the situation. What's interesting about that period as well was that you also had white groups, <laughs> Polish, Italian Americans that were also claiming discrimination 
uh, you know, that they were also pointing to uh, uh, the fact that they were underrepresented in uh, in some, you know, uh, you know, job positions. Uh, but their claims fell on deaf ears. Uh, and um, the theory that uh, whose author, I guess the author whose name I forget because I read this book years ago, was uh, his theory John, was you John, know, John why John Scrantney, I think is his name. I don't, I don't know. How yeah. Scrantney or something like that. Yeah, but he's saying is that a lot of these white groups, they could not, they did not succeed in making the black analogy. Meaning that if you want to get special perquisites and special, you know, privileges and special resources and, you know, attention from the government, you have to be able to some way draw parallels between your experience and the black experience. And the fact of the matter is, is that even though these groups may have had these ethnic, white ethnic groups may have legitimate grievances, that were at least worthy of investigation because they were white, nobody really took them seriously. Uh, and to be honest with you, those disparities pretty much, I would argue that they still exist. It's just because now whites are just grouped as all white. Uh, well, nobody really pays any of them attention. People would mock if I'm Italian American in the year 2020 and I'm saying that you know, Italian Americans are underrepresented. You know, we have less education, and you know, relative to others, and that you know, this is a sign that something's off in the system. Nobody would take you seriously. Um, and I, I think one of the, um, I guess, the consequences of that 1970s period, which is, like you said, is only it, it, today's environment is that just on steroids in in the sense exactly. that yeah. uh, now this discussion focused on disparities between group differences is getting amplified. Uh, and uh, some of it's a political, uh, you know, for, you know, because it has political utility, uh, I would argue. But um, the, uh, I, I, I think that is very consequential uh, or has, uh, you know, especially as it's become amplified, it, it has made us very, very, uh, maybe balkanized isn't the right word, but we, we people have become a lot more attentive to between group differences. Uh, and the only narrative that is allowed uh, in the media and politics is the fact that these groups, we, we can't go deeper than the fact that there's group differences and they probably are mean or you know, imply discrimination. Uh, and uh, any other explanation or account of that uh, is going to either meet charges of blaming the victim uh, or, uh, yeah. and, and I think that is true more today, or at least, you know, the, uh, I guess the, the suppression of alternative accounts has become a lot more apparent today than maybe it was in the 1970s and 80s, although I, I, would, I would guess it, it also existed then. But the dominant narrative now is, is really to point to these disparities. And, and this, it has intuitive plausibility, you know, it's that especially given America's history of, you know, slavery and racism that, you know, it, it's very simple to just say someone, look at all these disparities, look at this history, you know, they are, you could draw a line and they're, and they're both connected. And if we just get rid of one, uh, you know, we would have a, a egalitarian utopia. And you may think nobody really believes that among, you know, white Democrats and liberals. Well, actually, I mean, <laughs> the, the problem is no, few people actually asked this in the survey question. I did. Uh, and a lot of them, a lot of liberals and Democrats do feel that if you were to eliminate discrimination, uh, blacks would earn the same incomes uh, as whites. Oh yeah, that's uh, you're not allowed to say anything else. Of course, of course, they believe that. Yeah, but but and, and this is why I think when we talk about where we're heading is that 
I don't think these disparities are, are, are going away, just like I don't think the disparity between Russian Americans and Portuguese Americans right. isn't going away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we are a melting pot of people that came from different parts of the world, had different selection pressures, you know, when it comes to it would be really, you know, nonsensical to really expect there to be perfect equality in all yeah, of Thomas you know, Sowell, Yeah, Thomas Sowell, I mean, his books, he writes about this. I don't think there's ever been a society in human history that's been multiracial and has had equality. You know, we haven't had like data from like right. ancient Rome or whatever, but I would be shocked if there were, if you're, you could find one modern society in the world where right. you have distinct racial groups and they're equal in standardized test scores. They're equal right. in, uh, in uh, income. They're equal in arrest rates. Never, you'll never find that. It's you're asking for equality between all. Like you've never made like something that's never happened. You need to make happen between all groups in America, right? Like every of like the five big racial yeah. categories. And once, actually, no, you don't need that because. Asians do better than whites. So nobody cares. If everyone is doing better than whites at some point, right? Blacks are doing better than whites. I don't think people care about uh, Asians versus Hispanics, right? So nobody cares about the black Hispanic gap, right? In, right, uh, right, right. Rates. So the, yeah, yes, the yes. Yeah, I guess is whites are at the bottom in, in everything, right? Because that's that's the only way under the rules of PC. Well, that well, that's the thing. It's that I, I am a, and I, and I, I guess to, to make a normative statement, I am a believer that we should lift the floor for everybody. We shouldn't lower the ceiling for those on top. We should be, we should stop focusing on or obsessing over having achieving parity on incomes uh, and more focus on are people able to yeah. live quality lives, and we should help people live quality lives wherever they are. Uh, uh, and um, my worry is that. Um, uh, and I guess you made the point before about, you know, Hispanics, you know, assimilating and not really, I guess, buying into uh, a lot of this woke to some of them born in the alt, right? My, my concern, and I think one of the dividing lines between what separates those that are Hispanic Democrats and those that are, um, I guess, just independents or, you know, maybe they, uh, some of them, you know, 30% vote Republican is the perception that of discrimination uh, and, um, I, I, that is actually a, an important variable in predicting Hispanic uh, identification with uh, the uh, Democratic Party. Immigration is another source of it. But one thing I guess that gives me optimistic that they won't join, I guess, the same woke wagon as blacks and the white liberals is that, you know, the history of America's history of slavery and the recurrence of that issue and, you know, and that discussion and that narrative uh, there isn't an equivalent. There isn't an equivalent for Hispanics. Uh, uh, and um, the, my only concern is that you know the idea that of of the attention that's given you know between Hispanics outcomes and white outcomes, uh, you know, are going to be. Uh, I, mean, I, I think we're, we're we're giving a lot of attention. My concern is that, that gets more attention. They're going to have a subset of Hispanics that feel that yeah, maybe the system is maybe the white system is stacked against us. Now, I don't think all Hispanics are going to think that, but I think you, you will have a subset uh, that do, uh, that will compare their group's outcomes to whites because naturally people make comparisons between social groups. Uh, and my concern is that this focus between these disparities uh, and differences is going to, I, I don't know about turning us into Yugoslavia. I, I, don't, I don't think so, but it definitely is going to make... Uh, I guess politics or polarization, uh, you know, it's going to deepen it. I mean, 
I mean, I think we're, we're you know, polarization is already deep and, you know, how much deeper could it get? But I, I do think that, uh, well, I mean, one, one, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, I guess, how about, hope is that- how about the scenario? So you're talking about the future of America, you're talking about polarization. What if the future is, so you, you know, young people are moving left on these issues. What if the future is Democrats just win eventually? I mean, they have the, they have an increasing minority. Um, the minority population is increasing. Younger whites are more liberal on these issues. You'll have generational turnover. It's not going to happen one yeah. election. You know, they, they counted their chickens yeah, before it, they hatched it, 10 years ago. Um, yeah. But in 20, 30 years, what's happening? What, what's the, what, what's stopping it just well, from becoming California or something where uh, you have a permanent Democratic majority at the national level and conservatism just well, goes silks? Well, that, that's what really concerns me, which is why I'm lucky I have my escape shoot to Israel, my Israeli passport, <laughs> if I ever need to leave, uh, is that um, especially just given, uh, I, I, I think the left is winning and they are going to win and I think they're going to prevail and I think they are going to impose their will on society and Ultimately, um, I, I, I guess conservatives or the, the don't agree with it are going to have to uh, are going to reach a point where they can no longer win politically. So either they're going to have to fall in line, or they're going to have to try to do the impractical, which is try to separate. <laughs> and well, what, if, uh, what if what if giving liberals absolute power uh, chills them out? Because a lot of well, it is well, reaction to to Trump. So yeah, California just I, 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 will, I will say yeah. The affirmative action vote uh, in California is, is fascinating, right? So you had you you banned affirmative action back and by um, by uh, referendum uh, in the 1990s, and the state is much less white now. So the, they tried to bring it back, and then this is a uh, you know, the Asians and Hispanic, you know, majority I think now Asian Hispanic state, and it was beaten at the ballot box. I mean, just now they they couldn't the legislator couldn't bring it back because the voters rejected it. There were some other things too, like uh, other conservative things that passed, like. Uh, I know sometimes they put like death penalty. I, we don't execute people in California anymore, but sometimes it gets on the ballot like to officially get rid of it. And it usually never yeah. works. Like the people just want, you know, the death penalty. <laughs> they just want it there, even if it's never going to be, yeah. even if it's never going to be used. So maybe, I mean, maybe it's the Tea Party I, sort of like trying to separate yourself from these lower class whites that these liberals don't like and from somebody like Trump that's just making them more unbearable. And if there was like no conservative movement at all, like like who knows what it would be like, right? Yeah, I, I mean, well, that also gets to the question, you know, you know, would, uh, is Trump responsible for the awakening? Would we have been, we're, 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 in terms of the pace of change, you know, and, and you know, uh, and all these issues, would we be where we're at today if not for Trump? And I, I do think we, we may, it may have taken longer to get to where we're at, but we would inevitably be headed in that direction. Uh, now, I, I also, just to, um, I, I guess, echo my, uh, I guess, our colleague at this organization, Eric Kaufman, that one possible avenue is that wokeness gets too crazy and it discredits itself because its ideas are just based on I guess uh, uh, I guess it's it's moral commitments and not actually a social or empirical reality, and its policies are disastrous. And there's a backlash against it. I, I think that 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 is also likely. Uh, my concern now is if we will have a media that will um, scrutinize, uh, you know, these policies that they appear to be. I mean, at least in terms of their values or the commitments, they they they, they appear to endorse. I mean, we'll. Can we count on the media to curb the excesses of the woke? Can we count on them to report on 
when policies, liberal policies, have failed <laughs> and have had bad consequences. Yeah, good, good luck uh, with that. Yeah. Well, well that's we just the had thing. the biggest. Oh, I think we just had the biggest one-year increase in murder, maybe ever. I, I don't know exactly, but it, it, it's it's it should be a huge story, but it, it, it it's not. Well, the, the, so, that's. That, I, I would feel uh, much better. I would feel much better about a Biden presidency. I don't feel terrible about it, but I would feel much better if I trusted that the media was going to give the same scrutiny to Biden, or I mean, even half the scrutiny well, to Biden. They, they might that, be uh, not, maybe, maybe not to Biden himself, but say, are they more or less likely to report on increases in inner city crime if they're, you know, if they're afraid that it can be used by Trump and Republicans? Um, that's, that's the, right. I guess under Biden, if it increased too, it could still be used by Republicans, right? Because they could say Biden is doing it. So I guess, I guess it doesn't help that you're still, you're still. There's so many policies that, uh, I mean, that I never heard about until I read about it. Um, I could read about this in the book, Bill de Blasio in New York city. You know, there was too few, I guess, uh, uh, you know, blacks and Hispanics in AP classes. Right. Uh, so they just made an AP for everybody policy. <laughs> and I mean, what happens there is that, well, you include everybody. Now, the AP, the, the failure rate of the AP test just, you know, it's just shot it up. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm, I'm concerned with the policy. I didn't, I didn't know about that. I didn't hear about that. I had to read this guy's book. Uh, uh, what's his name? He's a psychologist. It was a book about intelligence. Uh, and uh, he, uh, I, there, there are these policies that I, I mean well that, you know, could have really bad consequences that I fear that the media is not going to cover because they could suggest that, uh, you know, I, I, I think they want to maintain the narrative that, you know, everything is working, everything's under control, you know, <laughs> and that. Uh, people that oppose this are just acting out of bigotry or they're afraid of losing their privilege or, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and that's really when I, when I, when, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whites fearing that they're losing their privilege. I actually interpret it or me personally as this isn't whites fearing they're losing their privilege. This is whites being afraid of being judged by completely different standards now uh you know getting rid of the uh, you know the sat the uh you know all these standardized tests and not and being judged on the basis of their group affiliation you know that that's not being afraid to lose their privilege the, the privilege is being able to score high in a standardized test which is a privilege that the asians enjoy uh you know a greater proportions than whites it's not even that it's I, like I, the people most angry about uh sort of uh liberalism though are not the people who do well on standardized tests they're just people who feel like they're just, the, you know, there's a theology out there. I, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's like your your typical uh, QAnon or mega supporter is like, oh, the SAT is my saving grace. I, I think a lot of them don't do well on the SAT actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's more along but, the lines of there's a theology on the other side where I'm the great Satan and that just makes me angry. And to a liberal, they'll say they're we're just moving towards equality and you know this is right right and when you're you know there's this like liberal meme or quote they they pass around on twitter that says when you're used to privilege equality feels like oppression or something like that so that's that's the liberal narrative and the other narrative it just depends right. on your perspective what you what you actually who you think is actually right and the other well yeah there's there's uh, discrimination and uh, demonization of whites and people are are naturally reacting to that yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I definitely think that's a part of it as, as well. It's the idea that, and that's why I, I'm really, I, I guess, I'm a classical leftist in the sense that I, I think we should raise the floor for everybody. I, I think policies that 
promise benefits for certain groups and not others. We're going to give prioritized attention to these groups that 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 is just counterproductive, I, I think, in the long run, because it's inevitably going to spur a backlash among the groups that feel excluded. Uh, and I, I think the messaging uh, on a lot of these policies is really just uh, it's more about uh, pandering to, uh, I, I guess, well, not only um, uh, I guess one's constituents, but uh, but political constituents, but also just a kind of uh, it's moral signaling uh, as well. Uh, that yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm concerned about that. I mean, I'm concerned about the backlash too. But even independent of policy, uh, like a like a political backlash, I'm just I'm also just worried about can we do excellent things, right? Are are you if you're going to have something like uh, uh, you know you're going to try to go to the moon again? Or you're going to have something like the Manhattan Project. Now, well, we, we threw that yeah. out it, when it came to COVID. Like, I don't think anybody was like sitting there saying, OK, uh, a high percentage of money to like fund vaccine has to go uh, fund vaccine research has to go to people of color. So in, like the crisis situation, you can you can uh, turn off this nonsense and just try to do something. But like in the day to day, it is such a drag on institutions and uh, the ability of science and the ability of the market and the ability of all these amazing things that have made life better and can continue to make life better to function, to have them worried about identity all the time. Uh, I would say the right, same right. way about uh, some of the immigration restrictionism that if you look at some of these, um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, this kind of economic nationalism where you want to exclude people from the market, the, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, um, I think the two of the people most um, involved with that were uh, Germans of Turkish descent, a husband and wife. Right. So I think, you know, if you would have, I think a lot of people's policy preference at the beginning of this would have been like, this should be everything in the vaccine process should you rely on American labor and be American made. And it's the same idea. Right. You're, you're preferring some people based on their characteristics rather than uh, market forces or scientific uh, or scientific acumen or some test or some objective standard. And you might say, well, a country's, uh, a country's uh, obligation is to its own people. Like, okay, but if you're holding humanity back as a whole, because the best people aren't working on the most important issues, then you're not benefiting your own country. You're not benefiting anyone's country. Um, you're just making us worse off. So I, I do see that sort of analogy between this yeah. simple-minded nationalism and, and the identity politics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on immigration, I agree with you. I, I think we should select for, I mean, I believe in selective immigration uh, and uh, finding, you know, and, and, and I, obviously this also has consequences in terms of a brain drain, but I, I do think if we're going to bring people here, we should prioritize, um, you know, people that are going to come in and, and really make a difference uh, and, and really have impact yeah. on not, not only our economy, but also the world. <laughs> One day, um, and, Zach, and, when you have a, uh, yeah, you talk about high, 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 uh, high uh, I, what's interesting, yeah. What's interesting yeah. is that much more for uh, conservative, uh, excuse me, for, for liberals uh, and Democrats, immigration is a charity service. It's not really about, um, you know, uh, I guess, finding and bringing in talent that, uh, you know, is going to, uh, you know, they're going to be making six-figure salaries, they're going to be working in Silicon Valley. Like, it's less about that than about, um, uh, I mean, listen, one of the strongest predictors I found in immigration in my data is moral shame. You know, people feel ashamed about white racism and white, white, uh, you know, whites, uh, I guess, responsibility for slavery. Uh, and I, I do think immigration for a lot of uh, 
I guess, pro-immigration leftists is a form of reparations uh, in the sense that we are, uh, and so much extent, I mean, what was it? Was it Steve Saylor that said during the Bush years, you know, we invade the world and then we, we invite the world in, you know? Uh, I mean, there, I guess there is some moral, uh, I guess, uh, justice in that, in the sense that if you're going to blow up another country, you know, and just leave the place in shambles, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> the least you can do is open your own doors. But I, I, I do think uh, for liberals, immigration is kind of a, um, in some really abstract way, a way of atoning for, uh, I guess, the sins of America's white majority. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. there's a lot of motivations here. You, you'll have people that do really are interested in, you know, bringing in, you know, the talents from overseas. But I, I do view, like, you know, the, the question of should we switch to a merit-based system has become polarized uh, in recent years. Now, conservatives are much more, Republicans are, are significantly more likely to say, yes, let's switch to a merit-based system that prioritizes skills. And then, you know, liberals and Democrats are more likely now to say, you know, no, let's, let's keep families together. Nancy Pelosi saying, what is merit? You know, what kind of question is that? You know, uh, yeah. and um, I, I, I do, it. it <laughs> It, I'll have to study this more explicitly, but when I can see in the data, it seems like the there are, the effects of moral shame on immigration attitudes are similar to the effects on support for uh, reparations uh, for blacks and uh, affirmative action for blacks and other pro-black policies. Yeah, so I, think are, I think some people would say like people's economic models might not all be correct. Some people would say low-skill immigration actually doesn't doesn't hurt the country that much. I mean, that's controversial. We don't have to get into that. But uh, yeah, let yeah, me ask you yeah. uh, one, more, one more thing. So we talked about the United States a lot. I mean, let's, let's circle back to how we started. We talked about your experience in Israel. You know, I, I didn't know that. That's, that, that's fascinating. I didn't know your background. Yeah. Um, what do American racial, you know, so you were there about 2006, 2007, you said you went there and you were, um, and you, so you must've come back around 2015. So around when the great awakening uh, was started or. Yeah, I came back in January, 2014. Yeah. So what was, what was, what was the Israeli, what were the Israeli attitudes or Israeli views of American politics or specifically American racial issues? What stands out to you looking back on that? Uh, because you know, I know they think really about the United a, States a lot. They, they do think the United States is an important country, right? So um, it, it's very, I think it's relevant to Israelis, is it not? You know what? Yeah, but you know what? When I was there, I was there, oh, it's, I guess you could say 20, 2006 to 2014, so eight years. Um, when I was there, uh, we were just preoccupied. Israelis as a whole were preoccupied with other things, such as uh, well, we had a couple, you know, a couple years in a row where we had, you know, major military operations in, in Gaza. Uh, and then you had the Obama situation, you know, where Obama was seen as, I guess, maybe taking the side of the Palestinians or not being supportive enough for, for you know, for Israel. So that seemed to preoccupy America a lot more than uh, the uh, race relations. Um, and uh What's interesting, I mean, there are blacks, there are Ethiopians, Jews in Israel, and you know, there's the, the racial dynamics are completely different there from, from my experience. Uh, and um, I don't think there was much really attention, or, or, or maybe things have changed. I mean, listen, I, I, I left, you know, when the awakening was still, I guess, in its infancy. Uh, so I, I don't know what type of public attention this has gotten there, but... Um, I, I think as far as the U.S. is concerned, you know, Israel is concerned insofar as the 
policies are going to affect Israel okay. uh, and yeah. Israel's well-being yeah. rather I than, you know, like, just yeah. as a general curiosity for race relations. I guess, I guess um, they see, they yeah. see uh, like in Europe, it's a little bit different because I know that there's some like people analogize there's an immigration issue. So like people on the right in Europe might like Trump and they start, start turning to like COVID skeptics because that's sort of what conservatives in America are. So it seems like Israel has enough concerns where, or different concerns that are so different that the American issues don't really map on. And it's just sort of like, you know, what does American policy mean for Israel? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, in Israel, I mean, the BB, the, you know, the right wing, uh, you know, the head of the right wing party, he was very hawkish on, you know, co- you know, on COVID, on lockdowns and vaccination. And some yeah, of the yeah, but he doesn't have just trying yeah. to just, right. And uh, so, I tweet, uh, I tweeted, which is interesting yeah, when you, yeah, then Yahoo's a, a smarter, yeah, smarter kind of nationalist. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, I was like, and I think I tweeted something at one point, like Trump followed uh, Netanyahu on um, policy towards Iran, but not on COVID. Like he should have maybe done the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> it will be interesting. I will say it will be interesting, especially if these peace deals, you know, the Abraham Accords, they hold up, and you know, Israelis. I guess. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with the Palestinians, but you know, if these foreign threats and the Israel siege mentality comes down, and they're less obsessed with, uh, you know, issues of, of national security and terrorism, you know, what you know, maybe they would start paying attention more to these other issues, you know, and, and that's one of the things as well that um, I don't mention it on my dissertation, but it is a consideration that has come to mind is the, the role in war and distracting us from, you know, uh, a lot of these racial debates, you know, the Iraq war, for instance, which had the rally around the flag effect or, you know, not 11, you know, they brought us all together, you know, race was very, very, it lowers the salience of it as an issue. Um, uh, and it also, and you could say the same thing about uh, in World War II, um, you know, and initially during the years of the Cold War, um, you know, the Civil Rights Act was passed during a time where I guess we weren't completely committed in Vietnam yet. Um, and uh, I, I do think that, um, you know, there are certain issues that sometimes dominate the news cycle that keeps the race issue, you know, on lower. Obviously, social media wasn't around during the Iraq War, but uh, you know, I, I do think race may have been more salient if it not been for the Iraq war. So maybe the awakening would have happened sooner or yeah, that yeah, trend would have picked point. up that's sooner. Um, yeah, you're so, right, because in the 80s and 90s, people were talking about the takeover of the universities by uh, left wing crazy people. And this was 1980s and 1990s, I think, when political correctness became an issue. But you're right. There's a delay where the Great Awakening didn't show up until 2010s. And you're right. It might have been just the, the, the war issue, the unity and then the not lack of unity from liberals opposing Bush and his well, to that becoming the debate. Well, yeah, the, 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 that's part of my theory is that people, how people categorize themselves or what category has paramountcy, uh, you know, in a given time period is going to vary. So uh, after 9-11 or during World War II, you know, we're all Americans. Uh, we think in terms of our national identity uh, and we have moral emotions that flow or, 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 you know, stem from that national identity, which is either uh, feelings of anger, national anger towards these outgroups, towards Muslim terrorists, or feelings of shame for the actions of, you know, what we did in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and by the same token, you know, when are the salience of the racial group category uh, is ascendant, uh, our most, our, and that's kind of what my dissertation, which I didn't have much time to touch upon uh, here, when the, when the main theory is that moral emotions, uh, in this case, when race is the salient group category, 
uh, you know, moral emotions such as shame and guilt in group directed anger. Uh, these are all uh, predictive of a lot of these woke attitudes and the salience varies over time yeah. as does the salience of the category of identification. So I do think there, there is something uh, to the idea that, you know, these wars make national identities, national belonging more salient. Even, you know, they have other really bad consequences as well, but the one plus side is that they do depolarize to an extent, uh, at least initially. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they kind of consume the new cycle. So I, guess, I guess what I'm hearing from issues. you is that if- <laughs> We need uh, another war. <laughs> yeah, if you want Israel to avoid the fate of the West and getting convulsed by identity politics, you need the Arabs. You, you can't. You yes, can't. You yes. can't defeat them. Finally, uh, having a peace with the yeah. EU and Saudi Arabia. Well, you still have Iran, right? So you still have one enemy. Yeah. Big enemy. <laughs> but, we need. We, we need. We should. We should. We should. We shouldn't let Iran get nukes. We should give them nukes. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is. Uh, listen, yeah. when we feel like our nation or lives are under threat, obviously that is going to get prioritized over other things like microaggressions and the fact that there's, you know, 10% yeah. more whites in this group than, you know, yeah, these are issues yeah. that we can only afford to care about when yeah. everything is really great. <laughs> yeah, society only um, has one time for sort of one religion or sort of one moral cause or maybe one or two at a time, you're right. And, and so, yeah, if there's a war, this other <laughs> stuff fades into the background when you're at peace. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. So I think some people are trying to like make China our enemy, and I think there's like a a, a, a uh, hope that that will like unify America together. I think that's dangerous to like consciously plan that. Like we're gonna, you know, have this enemy now. Yeah, I'm, let's plan this rally around the flag effect. You know, bring it together, <laughs> take on this. You know, I mean, um, yeah, I, I would. That's not. That is not the strategy I would recommend for <laughs> pushing back on the awakening. Same. Um, yeah. I. I I think, uh, I mean, the best case in terms of the wokening trend as I see it in the data is that it stabilizes. The curve flattens. It's right. not going to regress or return to its 1990s level. It's just going to stay flat until the next awakening. And there will be another awakening because it's not like blacks are ever going to stop being shot by police. Just like nobody's ever going to not be shot by police. And we're always going to have these issues. Uh, in a very diverse society, uh, and it's just waiting for the next opportunity to exploit these issues and to make it, you know, national news again. Uh, so I, I do think if there is a period where, you know, some of this attention wanes, it's it's not going to revert back to the attitudes of yesteryear. This is the new norm, as you said. You also mentioned the generational changes. You know, younger people tend to be woker. These people will join, you know, the workforce. They'll become, you know, assume positions of influence. It's not going away. Um, the uh, so it's really about uh, I guess uh, containment at this point or management. Uh, you're not going to defeat wokeness, I don't think, unless, as Eric Kaufman suggested, we you know wokeness somehow discredits itself in the same way that communism did. Um, well, you got a so you got a lot of that's my power. take. It's sort, of, it's sort of like Islamism when ISIS came to power and it like you know it destroyed every it uh, you know and the, these other Islamists. I guess that's not a bad example because ISIS is you know these Islamist groups are still around. Like the Taliban is doing very well and might take over Afghanistan when the U.S. leaves. I think communism is a better example because that that collapsed and failed. And so you yeah. need a woke rate of terror. But the thing is, the thing about woke capital is if you are not socialistic, the society is not going to collapse, right? If you just have capitalism and you create wealth and you buy off and you give right. your money, you give a, a quarter of your money to ta Coates or Black Lives Matter, 
you know, that's potentially sustainable forever. You're not going to give quarter of your money to Tom House. He cuts. I'm exaggerating. You give them 0.1%, which is what the NFL did. I did the calculations. It was like 0.1% of revenue, 0.2% of revenue, something like that. Um, when they dedicated like 250 million to Black Lives Matter over the next 10 years. Um, so it's a wow. very, it's I like- I did a, not- you yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I guess you could search by Twitter. They don't quote me on these numbers, but it was it was it was something like that. Yeah, uh, I might I might be off. I might have been. I don't think it was. Uh, yeah, I, I might be off by order of magnitude. It might be embarrassingly wrong, but the on the exact numbers. But the point is, it was a very tiny percentage of revenue. It was like an offensive, like the salary of an offensive line for one year on one team was what they were giving to social justice causes. And so it's got to be 25 million a year, 250 million over 10 years. So it can't be that. Can't be a billion. And um, yeah. And the NFL, like people think like conservatives will get mad, but you know, the NFL doesn't, their profits are barely touched by this and that's all. I mean, and people are happy, right? Like liberals are like happy. They're patting corporate America on the back. Now they're mad at them for other reasons because there is this genuine left-wing economic uh, energy on the left. Um, And I don't think they want or somebody like that to be, to be president. But if the woke faction wins, say within the democratic party and the Democrats become the permanent majority, um, it doesn't have to discredit itself. It, it, It hurts our society and we can't do great things and whatever, but um, society still functions. It's not. It's not the Soviet. Yeah, no. It, 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 it's not, not going to be collapsed. Yeah. Right. 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 No. It's just society is the American society that you thought you were living in if you grew up. I guess you know. Uh, it's going to be a different American society that is going to suit. Or I guess some people will adapt to. Uh, some people will love and cherish, and then other people are just going to want to leave <laughs> or just say, screw this country. I, I don't feel anything for it anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th- this just completely alien to me. Uh, and uh, well, the question is, well, what hap- What comes from that? Um, obviously, we are so, uh, you know, we're not distribute, you know, geographic, we're not polarized. Our partisanship has run along, uh, I-, I guess, uh, geographic lines because, you know, you know, we even have red states, you know, in Atlanta, you know, in Georgia, where I live, Atlanta is probably you know, more more liberal, you know, than uh, you know most other a lot of other cities in America, and um, you know, I, I, you know, especially uh, especially around the election, I think I was even engaging in you know talks of secessionism. It, it's that's not realistic. If I could really have my way, I would create a society, two societies, not along partisan lines or political lines, but uh, along a, a, a society that one. One society is committed to racial consciousness and engineering group outcomes and engineering equity. And another one is purely committed to colorblindness and letting, you know, providing opportunities, but letting the chips fall where they may in terms of outcomes. Uh, now, I, I think that's probably just as, you know, unrealistic and pie in the sky as, uh, you, know, uh, you know, just, you know, Texas and, and Georgia and all the Southern states forming their own Confederacy and, you know, just, but uh, I, I, I think that, um, you know, that will ultimately there will be, I, I do think some types of talks about separationism will become more part of the public discussion in not, not next year, although you could already probably see it, uh, the trappings of it, uh, you know, in this year. Um, you could, uh, I think down the road, you know, this will become more and more, uh, the, the calls among those that feel alienated from American society, that American side is becoming, and they feel like they're helpless to stop it. And they have no political influence over it. Uh, well, they're either just gonna have to put up with it or the alternatives are gonna start talking about, we wanna leave. Uh, and uh, obviously that could be more expressive than actually 
following up and acting on it, but it's those right. expressions will become louder, I, I think, uh, in, in, in the future. Right. Um, so, and um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So on, on that on that optimistic note, uh, Zach, I think you've made our <laughs> listeners very happy about the future of the United States. It's either a, a democratic permanence or some kind of divi- division and potentially secession. So I think I think you've uh, I think you've you've black filled probably yeah. our, our listeners. But on that yeah on that <laughs> yeah, on that optimistic note, uh, where can people find you? Where can they keep up with your research? Well, what's a good what's a good uh, for you? They could they could follow me uh, on Twitter. Uh, um, um, at my Twitter handle is uh, uh, at Zach G nine three two. My name, if you just don't remember from the beginning, it's Zach Goldberg. Uh, you could also find my work at uh, Tablet Magazine, where I publish a couple of articles. Um, yeah, and I'm pretty much based on Twitter. I've kind of gone a little bit Twitter silent because I've been spending so much time on my dissertation. But I do post a lot of interesting data on Twitter, typically. Uh, so, uh, you know, check me out. I, I definitely, uh, you know, I'm an interesting follow <laughs> if I can promote myself. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, Zach's Twitter account is better than most people's uh, <laughs> academic articles. I, there's a reason this stuff, <laughs> stuff broke into the mainstream. So. Uh, Zach, it's been great talking to you, and uh, we'll do this. Yeah. I think we'll do a. Full, we'll maybe have to do a whole one on the Middle East. I'm not sure. I didn't. Wasn't sure about. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I, I mean, listen, that, that was that was my focus for for pretty much. I probably spent more time on terrorism in Israel and all that stuff than I have wokeness. Wokeness was kind of like, oh my God, look at all this stuff that, you know, it's similar to some of the religious ideologies I was studying previously. (laughs) Uh, So uh, yeah, I would definitely love to come back and talk. Great. Okay. Thanks, Zach. We'll We'll talk soon. All right. Take care, Richard. Be well.